All right, you guys could just stand up throughout the service. The whole, no, I'm just kidding. All right, well, uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Romans this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. And we are nearing the end. I know, I think I've said that like three times now. We are really genuinely nearing the end of this letter. And we're now coming upon some material that maybe doesn't feel as weighty, doesn't feel as theologically deep. But this is important, meaningful instruction and, and a picture of what it means to be the church. So beginning in Romans 15, verse 23, Paul begins to explain his plans, his ministry plans moving forward. He says, but now there is... Now that there is no place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you. Amen. Now, in a way, this passage maybe kind of feels like that point in the conversation where there's like nothing left to say and you just kind of go, all right, so what are you doing this summer? Paul is basically just giving us his travel itinerary for the next few months, and he ends with a time of prayer requests. And as much as, you know, these are passages that when we read through the Bible, we kind of like skim over it, maybe just skip over it completely. It doesn't feel that important. There is some really important stuff happening here. There are some really interesting things to learn from this passage. And I think one of the big reasons why we miss this, why we don't immediately see some of the significance of this, is because of simple geography. When we read this passage and we hear these kind of different cities and places, we don't immediately think of what that means that Paul is going there and why he's going there. Uh, yesterday, my sister Tracy, her husband Will, and their one-year-old daughter Emily got on a plane, flew 2,000 miles, about a five-hour flight, from Atlanta to Los Angeles. And this was kind of a big deal for them because it was their first time flying with Emily. And for any of you who have ever flown with a one-year-old, uh, you know, it can be kind of a nerve-wracking, stressful experience. In fact, last month, uh, Tracy emailed Alyssa and kind of asked, like, hey, do you have any, any tips for flying with a baby? You know, she was obviously trying to prepare for, she was thinking about already this potentially 
challenging journey. And in case you were wondering, uh, I think our, our number one tip, our number one suggestion for flying with a baby is lots and lots of snacks. Like having food to eat is a great idea, so more parenting advice if you're flying with a little kid, bring lots of food. But their willingness to endure this journey, their willingness to go on this plane ride with a little kid, says something about them. I think in this case it says that they really, really like spending time with me. Or more, more truthfully, they like spending time with family. Family is important to them. Getting time for us to all spend together is a big deal. Well, Paul's travel plans tell us something important about him. And they tell us something important about his vision for the church. Uh, most scholars agree that Paul was probably writing the letter to the Romans from the city of Corinth. And Corinth was uh, on the Greek Isles. But he was planning, he was getting ready for a very big missions trip to Spain. And Spain, for the Roman Empire, it was basically the, the far reaches of the civilized world. When the Romans thought of the ends of the earth, they probably thought about places like Spain. And so this mission trip kind of reminds us of Paul's commitment to the spread of the gospel. And so Paul says, hey, I'm going to go to Spain, and on the way, I'm going to visit you guys in Rome. I'm going to come, we're going to hang out for a little bit, and you know, maybe you can give me some support for the mission ahead. And so as far as travel plans go, this makes sense. I'm going to put a map up here for you to kind of see this. Okay, so you've got Corinth down here. I don't know if you can see that. Corinth is the one on the right side. And you've got Spain over here to the left, and Rome is in the middle. If you are traveling, this makes sense. A little layover on the way to Spain. But in verse 25, he adds one more item to the itinerary. He says, I'm going to first stop in Jerusalem to deliver a contribution for the poor believers, the poor Jewish Christians there. And this is where Paul's plans start to look a little bit wonky. Because Jerusalem is all the way over here, to the right. This isn't anywhere near Rome. It's not on the way to Spain, unless he was planning on going the other way around the globe, which they didn't know how to do yet. So this is almost about 2,000 miles in the wrong direction. Okay, and keep in mind, this is not 2,000 miles on Delta. This isn't just a five-hour flight. 2,000 miles is months of grueling, dangerous travel. It's a, it's a boat ride. Most importantly, this is precious time out of Paul's ministry. We already talked about how much Paul cares about sharing the gospel with as many people as he can, going to as many places to bring the good news of Jesus. And he's going to spend these several months basically delivering some money. It sounds like something he probably could have sent someone else to do, but he says, no, I'm going to do it myself. Now, this po points to a very simple idea, that this collection was really important to Paul, and it was a really important part of his understanding of his ministry. Because not only is he going, not only is he spending this time, 
to go to Jerusalem, he's also telling the Romans about it. He's making sure that it's on their minds and that they're praying about it. He includes it in this letter, which tells us again, it's significant. And so this morning, I want to unpack just what was so important, what was so powerful about this Jerusalem collection. Why did it matter so much to Paul? And before we jump back into the text, I just kind of want to lay things out for you guys and, and be honest that this is a, a passage that deals with financial giving. Uh, this is a passage that deals with money. And you know, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't like really my preference to talk about money on our second week back in in-person services. There are definitely some other topics I would have rather covered first. But at the same time, this is what the text invites us to explore. And I promise this is not a you guys need to tithe more message. The reality is that you as a church have been unbelievably generous. The fact that we had a global pandemic, we couldn't even come to church, and many of you continued to give, continued to support us, uh, is amazing. And just generally, we are thankful for our church being so generous throughout the years. But at the same time, this passage is worth talking about. Because honestly, it's not about tithing at all. It's not a, a, about how much you give and who you give it to. But instead, it's about what it looks like when our money, when our finances, when our stuff is submitted to the kingship of Jesus. When we take this Romans 12 ethic in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God, when we take that and when we apply it to our money, not just in terms of tithing, not just when we say, God, 10% of my stuff is yours, but when we say, God, all of it is yours. Everything, my whole life. What does that mean for our money? And so just a heads up, in this message, I'm going to use the term giving quite a bit. And I promise I'm not using that as a euphemism for tithing. I really just mean giving our stuff to those who need it, giving our stuff to others. So we're going to dive back into our passage to see what we can learn about Christian giving from this Jerusalem collection. We're also going to be looking a lot at 2 Corinthians 8 to 9 because Paul talks about the collection in depth in that letter. And what we'll see this morning is three important ideas that Paul wants to highlight. Three ideas that help us understand giving as servants of King Jesus. And so our first point this morning, our first idea that we get from this collection is that it was a hard, sacrificial choice. Now that might seem like kind of a downer of a place to start when we talk about giving, but it's important to acknowledge that giving is not easy. And it wasn't easy for the believers in the early church. Now consider the situation. Paul says that he is taking a contribution to the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. The word he uses for the Lord's people is holy ones. And we know that that's a specific clear reference to Jewish believers. 
If you've been uh, following along in the series, you know that the Jewish believers were really the lower class members of the church. Uh, for various reasons, many or most of them were struggling. And from the context of this letter, we can gather that their situation was pretty desperate. It was pretty serious. And that brings us to a pretty significant idea as we think about what this collection was and what it means. Because Paul has gathered this money for Jewish Christians primarily from Gentile churches, churches that were composed of non-Jewish believers. And again, if you've been following along in this series, you know that these two groups didn't always get along. There was some real conflict between the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church. Paul had been mediating this disagreement between the strong Gentile believers and the weak Jewish Christians. And so there was kind of some real animosity there. There were some real kind of tough feelings between these two groups, not just in Rome, but throughout the early church throughout cities in the ancient world. And so giving to this collection, it wouldn't have been an easy or obvious choice for the Gentile believers. They are giving to people who they don't always get along with, who they don't always really like. Now, not only that, what we learn is that many believers gave even though they themselves were struggling. Many of the believers who gave to this collection were not giving from a place of abundance. 2 Corinthians 8 says that the Macedonian churches gave in the midst of a very severe trial and in extreme poverty. They didn't give because they had extra. They didn't give what was left over. They gave in spite of their financial situation, not because of it. And so as a starting point, when we think about this collection, it's really a remarkable accomplishment that Paul got these believers to give because it was generosity that wasn't based on the right recipient or the right situation. It wasn't because these are people who they really liked or people who they were like, and it wasn't just because they had all of their financial ducks in a row. It was hard, and it was sacrificial. And yet, what Paul tells us is that the prevailing attitude of those who gave was joy. That's the second idea from this passage, that the collection was a joyful offering. Uh, listen to what Paul says in Romans 15, and see if you can spot some repeated language here, because that's usually a sign that he's emphasizing something. Verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. Paul emphasizes this very clearly, right? They were pleased to do it. In spite of their poverty, in spite of the relational friction with the Jewish Christians, they were happy to give. I think this translation, they were pleased, kind of sells it short a little bit. The word actually kind of means they were delighted. It was a delight to give. Second Corinthians describes it this way. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy 
and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Overflowing joy. This points to a deep-seated emotion that makes giving a delight, a pleasure. When I hear this, this language, it kind of makes me think of the feeling I have when I get to uh, give my, my kids a gift, a present. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Alyssa and Kaya were out doing uh, some girl stuff, and so I took Gray to GameStop to buy him a new video game. And he only has two or three games, and he, he's just kind of starting to get into it. And so we were excited. He was excited to go, and we didn't really know what we were going to find. And so we go to GameStop, and we find there the Lego Star Wars original trilogy game. And this is very exciting for us for several reasons. One, because Gray loves Star Wars, especially the original trilogy. Gray loves Legos, and he's recently discovered he likes the Lego video games. And third, I only have an Xbox 360, which is like a 20-year-old console, so they only have like 10 games for this in the whole store, and one of them was Lego Star Wars. So we were super pumped. Gray was excited. I buy it, I give it to him, we go home, we play the game, we're having a great time, and he's just having a blast. But as happy as he was, and believe me, he was happy, I can guarantee you that I was even more happy. Because there's nothing like making your kid happy. There's nothing like that feeling of blessing your kid, of giving them something and seeing them enjoy it. It really is kind of a soul-level joy. It just kind of fills you up. And I really think that's the language that Paul is using here. That's what he's trying to communicate when he talks about overflowing joy and delight. He's saying this giving, it's not like a begrudging offering, like, well, okay. It's not like this bittersweet, like, oh, I don't really want to do it, but I know it's good and I should, so... All right, Paul, here you go. He says, this is soul-level delight. And so we, we have this, this tension, this seeming contradiction between giving as this really hard sacrificial act and giving as a deeply joyful experience. How do we reconcile these very different ideas? Because I think most of us, we understand the first part. We understand that giving to others is hard. It's, it's a sacrifice. It's hard to give when we ourselves maybe are struggling or when we don't feel like we have enough. When we look at what we have, we look at our families, and we think, you know, I, I really need this, or I'd really like that, or things would be more secure if I had this. It's challenging to give to others when we feel that way. And it can be hard to give to people who aren't like us or, or don't look like us. A lot of times when we think about the needs in our society, the needs in our worlds, it's people who don't travel in our social circles and who don't look the way we look. And so it can be difficult to think about giving with this kind of joy to the urban poor in our cities, 
to the homeless guy on the street corner, to the orphan, to the immigrant, to the widow, to the single mom, to the sick and hungry, to the people who Jesus talks about, who the prophets talk about. But as hard as that is, I think most of us want to be able to give with joy. We want to be able to bless others and to have it be a delight. And so the resolution to this tension is important. It's important for us to resolve this reality of hard giving with joyful giving. And the answer that scripture points us to isn't especially profound, but I think it's very powerful. That the kind of joyful generosity that the Bible invites us to, this joyful generosity grows out of a deep experience of the generosity and grace of our God. It's that simple, that as we understand God's grace more and more and more, we will grow in our generosity. We will become more loving, more giving, and more joyful. And that's the final thing we see in our passage. That's the final thing we see in this collection, that it was a response to God's grace and generosity. One of the most interesting verses in this entire passage is verse 27, where Paul says, they, or the Gentiles, were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessing. Now this is interesting because this is the intersection of joy and duty, of giving as a pleasure and the hard choice to give. And at the center of those two ideas, what links them together is God's gracious act of redemption. Paul has pointed to this idea that the reason why the Gentiles should give is because God has brought them into the family of God to share in the spiritual blessing with these Jewish believers. And so what they owe to the Jews is based firmly on what God has done for them. It's God's act of generosity, God's grace, that inspires and compels the Gentiles to share of their financial blessing. This idea is even more explicit when Paul talks about the collection in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 8. He says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. As simple as it is, Scripture is very clear here. We are most willing and able to give joyfully when we recognize the surpassing grace of God his blessing in making us rich. And Paul is using a play on words here as he talks about money and finance. He says, God has made you rich. But he's not talking about money and stuff. He's not talking about how much we have. 
but he's talking about what we've been given. This amazing, eternal, infinite gift. Life in his presence, kingdom life. Hope, joy, blessing, peace. This is a gift that we didn't deserve. It's a gift that we didn't earn. It is a gift that we cannot measure. It is so deep and wide and high that as sinful as we were, God loved us that much. He went to those lengths so that we could be rich in life with him. And we can never grasp this fully, but as we grow in our understanding of the magnitude of God's grace, we become more able, more willing to share that grace with others in whatever way we can, by whatever means we have. And ultimately, it's this idea, this reality that informs our thoughts about money. When we think about money and faith, the point is not that God is looking for a certain amount. It's not that God has a certain number or a certain percentage in mind of what will please him. Instead, when it comes to our money, God is looking for a certain kind of heart. A heart that is so impacted by his grace, by his generosity, that it looks for ways to be generous to others. God is looking for a heart that views money in light of his mercy. Now, let me just quickly say this about tithing. I think tithing is a, a good thing. Uh, tithing is a great guideline for being generous with the body of Christ, for being generous in supporting the ministry of the church. If you tithe, that's great. If you don't, I think it would be good if you did. And that's kind of a separate deal, separate message. But I think sometimes the conversation we have about tithing in the church, that kind of whenever we talk about money, it's always in relation to tithing. I think sometimes this can actually prevent us from pursuing a genuine biblical ethic for faith and money. I think sometimes tithing can actually get in the way of being generous with our money. I know for myself, there are, there are times when it can be easy to think like, okay, I've tithed, I've given my 10%, I think I'm good with God and money. I can kind of check that off the checklist, at least for this one thing in my life, I can say, okay, it's good. And then there are opportunities around me to be generous, to give to others, and I maybe feel that tug. But then in the back of my mind, it's like, well, I've already tithed. So, you know, I've been generous, so maybe, maybe that's not that important. Maybe, maybe God's not asking me to do that, and it can become a barrier to generosity. But real, biblical, New Testament generosity doesn't, doesn't look like this. It has no end point, and there's no point where we could just check it off a list. Instead, it's an ongoing process 
of just allowing God's grace and his spirit to transform us. So much that we are always looking for opportunities, always looking for places and people where there are needs, where we can bless others with our finances. And obviously there are very real practical limits to how we do this. We can't give everything, and we can't give all the time. There is some discernment in when we give and how much. But the point is simply to be open to the idea that as God reveals more and more of himself to us, as we walk deeper into his grace and deeper into his kingdom life, then our perspective should begin to shift. We become more aware of the needs around us and more aware of the opportunity we have to meet those needs. We become more open. We desire to give more. And ultimately, we experience more joy when we do give. That's what grace does. And God simply invites us to be open to say, okay, God, Romans 12, offer myself. Here's my money, too. Do what you want. So this morning, as, as we close with a time of worship, as we think about, as we sing about God's grace, his goodness, his generosity, we want to realize that these aren't just songs to sing. These aren't just words. But when we worship God, we are proclaiming a transformative reality. A new reality that impacts, that shapes who we are and everything we do. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for how much you love us, how much you've given us, how blessed we really are, how rich we are. And God, I pray that you would just continue to mold and shape our hearts in all things to live in light of your grace, to live in light of your generosity. And even with these things that we want to hold on to, that we want to say, no, that's mine, would we open our hands and simply let you be king. Simply let you be God. God, would you speak and move? Would you allow your grace to transform us this morning. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen.